0: Hello and welcome back to the Sinobabble podcast. This week I'm joined once again by Emily Matson as we discuss the introduction of two new laws at the beginning of the People's Republic of China, the education law and the marriage law. In this episode we talk about the reasons that they were introduced, their significance and their impact until later times including the modern day. The reason that I wanted to talk about the marriage law and the education law even though there's only a sliver of connection between the two is because of what they more what they represent as opposed to the fact that they're actually tangibly connected so the way i saw it was that the ccp was coming into the plc with this view that they had to radically change everything and they had to sort of institute this radical liberation in society They promised that they were going to achieve, you know, um, sort of liberation of the masses and that included equality for women, equality for poorer people. So it was kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a class thing because I think you and I have discussed in a previous podcast about how, you know, Mao was all for the peasants, but he kind of saw women as like the, the bottom rung. They were like a class below the peasants in general. Right yeah so in my view these two laws are linked because it's about bringing just bringing society up to kind of like an equal standard so uh, uneducated people would have the chance to get educated and women would have the chance to kind of you know fend for themselves in terms of choosing their marriages freely and things like that Mm -hmm. um but (laughs) both of the laws after their initial sort of first wave. So we're kind of talking about the period like 1950 to 1953. So both of them kind of had not, I wouldn't say detrimental results, but more results that were kind of contrary to what the party actually wanted to achieve, which is kind of the problem with trying to put into place a huge scale plan on a population of half a billion people. It's not going to go exactly the way you want it to. Um, And so they were both, they both of the laws end up being... um, Sort of de emphasized. So they're still there, but they are no longer promoted as much. But despite the de emphasis, they still have like long ranging sort of changes. Even to this day, you can still see some of the changes. So that's the introduction. <laughs> that's why we're talking about it. And um, we're going to start with the marriage law. So I think. A quick introduction to what exactly the marriage law was and what it came about and what it hoped to achieve would be great.
1: Sure. So the marriage law, what I learned in doing a little background research is that it was actually in the fall and winter of 1948 that Liu Shaoqi on behalf of the CCP Central Committee asked the Central Women's Committee to draft the marriage law. So even before the founding of the PRC, the CCP considered it really important to draft this legislation, which... I think says something about how they wanted to prioritize um, this law, and in fact, they had marriage laws that the 1951 was based on from as early as the Jiangxi Soviet. So this was not new, but it goes back as far as 1931, actually. Like you know, marriage laws that the 1950 law follows from, um, and it's one of the first, if not the first, nationwide law to be uh, promulgated in the PRC, and it takes effect on May 1st, 1950.
0: Okay, yeah. So what exactly were they trying to achieve with the marriage law? Because we call it the marriage law, but it's not really just about marriage. It's more about it's more about modernizing the family, so to speak. So what so what were they actually trying to achieve with the law?
1: Great question. Um and actually the law um talks about divorce so much that a lot of people are calling it the divorce law and not the marriage law. In 1950. So I think that is a clue as to what they wanted it to achieve. So um, according to Marx and Engels, um, the family is this oppressive institution that's at odds with individual freedom, particularly for women. The CCP does not believe that exactly, but they do call for the end of these feudal or so-called traditional marriages um, and for these quote-unquote modern ones to be implemented instead. So even though it's a modernity that's quite different from, you know, your Western individual modernity, you can still see the influence of the May 4th movement, which the CCP is really trying to claim as its own in the promulgation of this marriage law, like these individual rights for women in particular. Um, within the family structure but it still differs from orthodox marxism in that they don't think the family is bad and they don't want to abolish it entirely
0: yeah i think it's probably the um the root of that is probably the fact that china is much more much more traditional than their western counterparts in terms of family structure and marriage like the the majority of the population was still illiterate peasants whereas the west had kind of already gone through that process of industrialization a lot of they had a lot bigger urban populations and society was more modern i suppose so china you know china in 1950 was not the same as you know america say in 1950s so right. i think the it's like the difference between western values and chinese values coming out here i think in china to say we're going to abolish the family completely considering that the family was the foundation of, um, sort of the economic foundation of society as well. Because if you think about the fact that the majority of peasants, the, the majority of the population were peasants, right? And peasants owned their own land. Sometimes they didn't, but let's say, for example, a peasant owned a piece of land. That land could only be inherited by the sun, and it was the sun's duty to sort of reproduce make more sons and sort of continued the line and that was his filial duty to his ancestors and his parents etc so the whole foundation of society in terms of social relations economic relations was based on the family so the ccp couldn't just walk in and be like the family's evil because people just people wouldn't have been able to click with that so it was more approaching it in a sort of we're gonna change up the family as opposed to abolish it completely i guess would have been more acceptable
1: Yeah. And speaking of land, the land reform law and the marriage law were supposed to be carried out simultaneously in the early 50s. So you can't just abolish the family because then who are you going to give the land to when you start this process of collectivization from the very beginning in a lot of places the CCP was unable to reach before the end of the civil war, right?
0: So yeah, we'll talk talk about land law in a later episode and probably later in this episode as well, because I think it's important to talk about the fact that the marriage law was not introduced in isolation it was introduced at the same time as actually quite a lot of other things were going on at the same time so I think it's important to think about that but before we move on to that let's talk about what did the marriage law actually say like what did it what what did it say what actually was it
1: yeah sure um So the marriage law in 1950, and this was in cooperation with the Women's Federation, which was also established in 1950, I believe, or it's now called the All-China Women's Federation. Um, So in 1950, I mean, it was very broadly reaching. Um, So it's divided into a bunch of chapters. I'm not going to read it verbatim, but um, marriage as uh, being based upon the complete willingness of both partners, um, and the abolition of polygamy, concubinage, child betrothal, and any of these "quote unquote" feudal customs um, that would be in opposition to the supposedly, you know, modern, more individualistic um, image of marriage. I find the marriage law interesting because it's very individualistic in some cases, but it also imposes a lot of state, unprecedented state control. On marriage and other instances, like in order to your marriage has to be registered for it to be considered valid. Uh, you have to register in person um, with the, you know your local uh, subdivision for the marriage. I mean, you know this this concept of the legality of marriage for the government to be so heavily involved in um, this relationship between two people is unprecedented. Because before in Chinese history, I mean, it's largely just based on the village and the community. I mean, that's what makes a Um, marriage legitimate or not but now it's the state that makes a marriage legitimate
0: yeah i think that's an important point to bring up because it has to do with communist systems in general but also just generally um these sort of like large state um bodies like you see it now in our modern states as well in western societies but basically the idea of trying to make society more legible uh, in other words, like trying to actually document mm-hmm. how many people do we have? Where exactly are they? What do they do? And in that way, you make society more easy to control, which for the CCP right. was very important, obviously, because they were also trying to right. introduce these large scale mass movements, this, these big projects to industrialize the entire country and you know modernize everyone at exactly the same time. So it makes a lot of sense that they were involved in something as fundamental as, okay, how many people do we have? <laughs> Which ones of them are married to each other? How many families are there? Where do they all live? That actually makes a lot of sense.
1: Right. In terms of, say, um, the facility of of taking a census, for instance, it makes it a lot easier when you know who's married to whom and what children they have together. Um, so you're absolutely right. Yeah, for state control. Um over the family and knowledge of the relations within the family by the state makes it a whole lot easier.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's one aspect of it, but you also brought up um, these sort of feudal aspects of it, right? So um, concubinage, uh, child marriage. I don't. I, I think as well in China, child marriage doesn't necessarily mean getting married to like a nine-year-old for people who are wondering right. <laughs> what that is. It's more like if you're... Um, It's more like if you have too many daughters in your family or if you're too poor to look after your daughter, you might sort of sell that daughter to another family. Um, And then when she grows up, she will marry the eldest son or like uh, one of the sons in the family, basically. So it's not so much, um, you know, older men getting married to 12 year olds, although there was no legal age of... um, Consent before the, this law because this law changed the legal age of consent, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong. Right. So you tell them: eighteen to women and twenty for men. Okay, yeah. So a woman had to be at least yeah. eighteen, a man had to be at least twenty. So yeah, so that brought in the kind of hard and fast rules on that. Even though I'm not sure a lot of people would have known how old they were, so that would have been quite interesting. <laughs> that could have been problematic <laughs> yeah because also like traditional um peasants would have been using lunar calendars and um sort of seasonal calendars as opposed to sort of like the gregorian calendar so right uh, the idea of age you know people didn't have id cards and things like that so yeah or birth certificates for yeah, yeah exactly so that would have been quite an interesting concept but there we go. And people couldn't read them, anyways. So that's true. They wouldn't have been able to read it, even if they had it. Um, so yeah, the age thing was probably more like an approximation, but right. you know, it's still it's still a good thing, obviously. And that that um, clause is still in place today. Actually, it's still eighteen and twenty, I believe. That hasn't changed.
1: Yeah, the marriage law I think has been revised several times since 1950, and let's see, it was revised in 1980. And that put a much heavier emphasis on family planning, you know, because this is when the one child policy really comes into effect. And then the latest revision to it has been in 2001, um, which forbids things like unmarried cohabitation, domestic violence. Interesting that those two are placed, you, you know, those are two of the major features of the 2001 uh, revision. But anyways, yeah, so there have been several revisions to it since 1950 to kind of add on.
0: And there was a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but there was a clause or two about protecting women who were pregnant. So you can't divorce a woman who is currently pregnant for up to a year after she's had a child. And right. um, yeah, obviously, the child marriage thing is put there to protect children. So we're already thinking at this stage, we're not only protecting um, women or we're not only advancing women's rights. We're also thinking about protecting children and their rights as well.
1: And children born
0: out of yeah, wedlock as well are protected, which would have been a big deal. Exactly, yeah. Although, according to some reading, having children willy-nilly out of wedlock was not as uncommon as we might think. The final part of the law, you mentioned already, was that it was called the divorce law, sort of more commonly right. among people. Um, and a lot, I think a lot of people still think of it as the divorce law, because the number of divorces that happened after it was introduced just like skyrocketed
1: yeah i think there were around a million divorces filed for right after the law was promulgated in 1950 mostly by women um and also a lot of women so another of uh, the clauses in one of the previous articles states that wives shall have the right to use their own family names. So a lot of women were rushing to get divorces and to have claims to register their own names because this was largely tied into their right to inherit their own land as well, which is also in the marriage law. So going back to land reforms again, you know, the entitlement to one's own name is intricately connected to entitlement to having your own land because you need to have your land be in your name.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So this is, where we should probably talk a little bit more about land reform itself, because this was the other major thing going on at the time. So land reform, I spoke about it a little bit in the previous episode, but for those who do not remember, (laughs) uh, land reform was essentially um, the end of the feudal system, so to speak, where landlords would own large parcels of land and then rent them out to their poorer neighbours. Instead, it was... Uh, process whereby all of the land in China was basically subdivided and then everyone got a little piece of land. So it was kind of like a return to family, family plots, essentially. So every family would get their own plot. But a major change was made in that women were now able to own land, whereas in the previous system, women were not able to own land. They were just part of their husband's unit, essentially. They weren't even... I think... Is it unfair to say that women were not really regarded as existing in terms of um, like formal economics or formal sort of like socioeconomic traditions? Yeah,
1: I mean because any land that a woman would have before her marriage would just automatically go to her husband after her marriage so she wouldn't be able to own land in a marriage
0: yeah. Yeah, so she, a woman could never be an owner, even though women were very important, obviously, to the economic sort of well-being of a family. Because apart from you know land work, you had other things. I can't remember what they what they called them. Sort of like side side hustles, basically. People had lots of yeah, lots of families had side hustles like you know um, silk weaving, clothes making, and things like that, where women would be really important because they would be mainly in the house. Or women would help with farming as well, especially in southern China where, you know, you needed more hands on the land. So women were definitely in- integral to the economic well-being of a family, but they were never sort of owners. They were kind of seen as outsiders, usually, of their husband's family until they had their own sons. And then the mother-son bond then became really important to a family. Um, yeah. So th- And then that's where you get the stereotype of the evil mother-in-law who doesn't like her new daughter-in-law because she feels like she's going to steal her son away which is a very common trope in chinese sort of storytelling yeah so this is what this new law was aiming to change but (laughs) people's interpretation of the law did not go exactly to plan as the ccp would have planned it Something that went wrong straight, well, not wrong. I don't know if it's wrong per se, but I think it's something that the CCP didn't really plan for was that because so many local cadres, local officials were illiterate, and because they were from sort of poorer class backgrounds as well, um, they didn't necessarily have like the presence or the authority over their fellow villagers initially. To enforce this law, basically. And so they immediately ran into problems, I found in the reading, which is interesting. And
1: scholars have also been in disagreement over who actually benefited from this law and who did not. Like, uh, Eddie, you and I were talking about how for a long time it was assumed that the rural women were the ones who really lost out in terms of the marriage law because, oh, you know, traditional patriarchal notions were so strong that after the marriage law was passed, things didn't really change in the countryside, and you had these local cadres um, who were still, like, you know, buddies with whatever woman was trying to— with the husband of whatever woman was trying to file for a divorce. But then the scholar named Neil Diamant, um, I'm probably going to read the whole book he wrote um, about um, what's it called, revolutionizing the family. He argues kind of the opposite that these rural women actually were able to creatively advocate for themselves. And that the real losers were either older mother-in-laws or, you know, poor rural men in these cases, because the women could just kind of get divorced and go off and try and marry someone else with a better class background or something. But then the men oftentimes would be seen as undesirable or kind of
0: stuck. That was probably something that the party didn't anticipate. And one of the reasons that they had to kind of step back from promotion, because these poor peasant men were the backbone of the revolution basically they were the people who supported the ccp a lot of them had fought for the ccp as well and actually another group of people who lost out big time were soldiers because mm. you were not supposed to be able to divorce a soldier while he was off but lots of women um you know would have extramarital affairs and you know would file for divorce even when their husband wasn't around and if they were having an affair with a local official, obviously that official would approve the divorce. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So a lot of soldiers, um, you know, they they had a period where a lot of soldiers were uh, coming home, um, you know, and then either you know killing their wives or killing themselves or just dropping out of the army. So that it created immediately sort of these unintended problems whereby women. I think something that I read from Diamond as well is that the party didn't anticipate that women wouldn't see it as a class problem, but rather a women's rights problem. So all women saw were these evil mother-in-laws and these oppressive husbands and not sort of like the feudal system. So the CCP was looking at it from like a systematic oppression uh, perspective, whereas women were seeing it as, well, this is how my life is and I want to change that. So <laughs> this is like yeah. the perennial problem of the women's rights movement coming into um, sort of disagreement or clashing with the larger CCP's uh, movement and ideology.
1: Yeah. And the all China women's federation has had to deal with this throughout all of the years of existence. Um, like, you know, in, I mean, well, class struggle is obviously not a thing anymore in China. It was dead as of what, 1982, but um, I mean, I know with the Me Too women's movement in China, um, the All-China Women's Federation has had to be very careful with what it supports and what it doesn't because the party is still relatively conservative on feminist activism even today.
0: The women's movement was essentially told that, you know, women are equal as much as they have to be equal because we're trying to do something here. We're trying to modernize, we're trying to industrialize, but don't think that women's rights or what women want it can ever be ahead of our ultimate revolutionary goals right class struggle
1: was considered front and foremost during the mao era and women's rights was kind of a secondary objective
0: exactly so women as you said women had to be pretty creative especially the all china women's federation they had to find ways of kind of integrating women's uh the women's movement, the feminist movement into the larger goals of the state. So they had to kind of portray whatever they were doing as, well, this is integral to what the state's trying to do. You know, this struggle is part of class struggle. Um, Women in the workplace is part of um, industrialization. So they had to basically be a bit more cunning, even though they didn't have any actual um, sort of power in the formal power structure. So this is a bit of a digression, but did you know, Eddie, that
1: before um, the 20th century, there was no real term for women in Chinese? What? (laughs) Yeah, I just read about this today. So um, you had terms for like wife and daughter and these relations of women, like in relation to family structure, but no kind of standalone term for just women. So after 1911, and especially during the May 4th movement, there are these new terms that kind of come into being like niu xing or Ren or fu that combine these terms like the word, like fu for wife or niu for daughter, for instance, they were used, but these are just um, women's relations to others. It's not a term for women themselves. So then the CCP decided on the term fu niu because they thought the term niu xing was like too bourgeois for some reason. So, but like, you know, so they had to pretty much designate the appropriately revolutionary term for women that was you know not bourgeois and that was like
0: communist enough that's really cool, (laughs) I didn't know that actually although that makes sense because if you think about it, nuxing is like um, the female sex right, so that's kind of like a scientific term whereas funu is kind of like our wives and daughters so it's kind of more um, I guess it kind of brings women into that close relation with the party state which is what the ccp is always trying to foster right the ccp right, is always so trying right. to link the the individual directly to the state right so in a way
1: this term for women it still doesn't exist in and of itself right it's still in relationship to something but in this case it's in relation to the party state
0: uh, that's the major thing that i actually found for my thesis it's like whatever the party's trying to do they're trying to erase the sort of social relations and sort of traditional kinship ties and basically create new ties between the individual and the state so i think that's because you said at first actually you said that the new law in some cases was really individualistic and in some cases was really um not at all yeah and so in the cases where it was individualistic it's basically trying to break down the feudalistic side of things and then re sort of reintegrate people to the new state, which, yeah, I guess that's the point of all the laws, really. Right, so
1: you have this tension within them, they're trying to accomplish these two things at once, but you can see how implementation could very easily go awry.
0: Yes, and, and it did. Um, <laughs> so I guess the interesting thing about this law as well is that there doesn't seem to be a scholarly consensus. <laughs> There seems to be sort of a large majority of scholars who see it as one thing, which is like women still struggled a lot and they had to struggle against these local officials who weren't necessarily on their side or didn't really understand the law properly. And, you know, it was detrimental to male peasants as well. And then you have basically Neil Diamond because I haven't read anyone else sort of who's written how he has, who's basically been like, women would take the law into their own hands bypass local officials go straight to the county courts and demand divorces and they would um, you know attack their Mm -hmm. former families they would attack their old mother-in-laws for treating them badly and things like that so I think even where the state's intended outcomes actually occurred I don't think that they occurred in the way that they wanted them to (laughs) if that makes sense And I think something else that Neil Dumont mentioned that was quite interesting was where he was talking about the difference between the different areas of China as well. So he talks a little bit about the Southwest, like Yunnan and places like that. And he talks about how this law and other laws and other mass campaigns that were introduced as well weren't just, you know, for the rights of women or whatever. They were also part of the CCP's sort of like civilizing mission for these frontier regions that weren't really traditionally part of uh, sort of the mainland of China. They didn't have a Han majority population and they were seen as kind of exotic people. They were seen as these, um, you know, like these frontier tribesmen almost, um, who were more sensual, more erotic. They had much freer sexual practices and things like that. So it was almost as if, they were, um, it was part of the CCP's colonizing project, which we know that they had.
1: <laughs> well, right, which is a term, of course, they would never use to describe themselves as, but oh, no. if it, it was colonization. Liberation in their
0: terms. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely liberation from sort of feudal, feudal traditions, feudalism. Right. <laughs> Gender equality
1: it's not, it's always subordinated to class struggle in one way or another. Women are always grouped with men who are in their same social category, so they can't really exist as a class of their own. So I think that was another limitation for women's rights, potentially.
0: Absolutely. And I think, actually, that was a limitation for men's rights as well. It was just a limitation for, like, freedom (laughs) in general, because you could only move as far as your as your class and your uh, sort of background label allowed you to. So to explain sort of labels really quickly, there were kind of like the red good labels. These came more into effect in the Cultural Revolution, but you still had some beforehand. But you had like the good classes and the bad classes. And if you were a peasant in China, it doesn't really matter whether you were a landlord or a middle peasant or a very poor peasant If there was a famine, you were all going to starve, basically. Um, But everyone had this designation. So if you happened to have a little bit more land at the time of the revolution, you would have been a landlord or a rich peasant. And that label stuck with you. But you still would have been a peasant on sort of like a national level. level. Mm -hmm. And then within that, you would have been a man or a woman. So you had all of these things that... You know, these laws or these new movements, the liberalisation of China, they gave you new freedoms, but they also introduced new restrictions as they gave you these new freedoms. It's like, OK, so you can divorce if you're not happy with your marriage, but it's not like you can move to the city and find a new wife or husband and move up in the world and get a job in industry and like live a middle class life or something like that. You would still have to go back to your own village and work on the land that you've been designated to work on with the class background that you had been given by the state and therefore only allowed to marry certain kinds of people because no one would want to marry you if you had a bad class background except for other people with bad class backgrounds
1: right and especially after the promulgation of the um uh, what is hukou in english registration system household registration system right and that would have been a type 58 with the Great Leap Forward, which I'm sure you're going to talk about later in one of your episodes, like especially after 1958, there's this really strict household registration system put into place that makes it very, very hard for anybody to move anywhere. That is still today, largely.
0: It affects everything about your life. So it affects, you know, who you can marry, it affects what job you can get, it affects where you can live. And even today in China, they still have this um, problem with... Uh, what are they called? Migrant workers, right? Because um, they're trying to change it now. But for example, mm-hmm. if you're a peasant migrant worker and you go to the city to work, and you have to live there, your children cannot go to school in that city, right? So you have to leave them in your village with your grandpa- with their grandparents, or your parents, or whomever, and you have this sort of separation of the family. Even though it's for the economic well being of the family. And then at the same time, the rural levels are not being developed because the people, the able bodied working people, have gone to the cities to work. So, yeah. So all of this started here, basically, is what we're trying to say. But yeah, like I mean, like I was saying, it's several different things going on at once. So the marriage reform was not introduced in a bubble, it was introduced at the same time as land reform. You had like the three aunties and the five aunties going on at the same time. And something else that we're going to talk about now is that we also had changes in education reform. And there was a big sort of urban rural divide in this area as well. I
1: don't know about the rate of illiteracy overall, but for women, it was worse. In 1949, there was about 90% illiteracy. Um, and then of course, if you get, go out to the poorer rural areas and among the ethnic minority population then that there will be greater rates of illiteracy there than say in the urban areas which is the divide you're talking about, no?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean it wasn't good in general. Also the, the level that they required for you to be considered literate was very low. It's like 1500 characters which you and I know it's not <laughs> that does not make you literate in Chinese. By any means and they did all these well there's like some famous rural surveys from the 1930s which i actually had to read as part of my thesis so so you've got this one by um this guy james l buck i think it's like one of the most famous ones from the 1930s and his it's like used all the time as a, a means of sort of describing what rural life was like for people and he classifies people into different groups and he was like well If we're talking about people who can read, not even write, read a simple letter, it's like 1% of women and 30% of men, basically. So no one, no one can read in the early 1950s. By 1949, no one can read. And the CCP obviously wanted to change that because the requirements of the revolution necessitated that people were literate, essentially. Yeah, better for propaganda,
1: if people can actually read what's on these big character posters, etc.
0: It wasn't so much for propaganda, I think it was more like, the UN thinks that we're dum-dums, and <laughs> we need to kind of prove that we're, you know, we have to be modern on every metric, so to speak. So we have to be modern in terms of our industry, in terms of our culture. In China today, they put a lot of emphasis on like being civilized when, right? So, if you go to China, you'll see lots of posters that say things like, you know, don't spit in the street, let's be more civilized. Don't uh, cross the road before the lights turn red, be more civilized, sort of thing. So,
1: yeah, and that, I mean, is something
0: that existed in
1: Republican China very much so, too. If you think of Chiang Kai shek's infamous new culture movement, it was also all about being more quote unquote civilized.
0: But in the early 1950s, they're more focused on Kind of like trying to set up schools, trying to reform the education system, especially in urban centres along Soviet lines. And this is where Soviet influence starts to get really important. I'll have a whole, we'll have a whole talk about Soviet influence in a later episode, but this is like the first instance of like, so what was the relationship between the Soviet Union and China? And um, father-son, I think, doesn't stray too far from the truth.
1: Right. Oh, going back to the marriage laws really quickly. Did you know that after the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, marriage law was one of the first laws to be promulgated by the Soviet Union as well back in 1918? I didn't know that.
0: So just one of
1: many, many parallels I'm sure we'll get to.
0: So, okay, so it's kind of almost an identical copy. I mean, the Soviet Union wanted to, the
1: state wanted to control society through the family as well. So, you know, it, it makes sense why it would be one of the first laws promulgated there too.
0: Okay, so it's kind of, it's almost as if for a communist state, making marriage legal, right? So bringing marriage into the, the system of the state is kind of like a first step because that's that's the first way to bring people into the state. Mm-hmm. I think kind of, literacy as well it's a similar process i mean it's like you said if if people are literate then it means that they can understand what the state is saying to them better they can actually read things that are being right. you know passed down but at the same time they can fill in forms they can write letters they have these id cards or hukou as they're, they're called in china so it's make it by making people more literate and able to understand things that are being written down the state is then able to kind of receive information from those people, sort of take the information that they need and make the people as a whole more legible and more understandable and therefore easier to control. But also they wanted to teach people how to read. So, okay, so this is quite obvious, but obviously the first problem that the CCP had when they were trying to do this like big reformation of all of the schools and universities and stuff was resistance... staff so the staff were immediately like we don't want to teach this stuff we want to keep teaching the literary classics or whatever and so they started the i think this might have been actually the first ideological reform movement in 1951 ideological reform movements we should probably talk a little bit about what that is because did you know this is what apparently the chinese came up with the term brainwashing just Xi now
1: yeah you now right it existed in chinese before in english right
0: yeah which is it's like
1: direct translation no yeah
0: and that i i think that's hilarious like <laughs> uh, i think it was the
1: cia who might have translated it into english from chinese
0: yeah i think it was because and i think it was because of this movement as well so this um, reform mm-hmm. movement of uh, school teachers and university teachers and mm. I don't know if brainwashing is the right term. I don't know how I feel about that term in general.
1: Yeah, but I know it has a very pejorative connotation in English, but not in Chinese. It was considered a positive term in Chinese.
0: Exactly. Because the idea is like you're washing away um, like your traditional ways of thinking, right? Your traditional notions, your feudal ideas, your bourgeois ideas in the case of university teachers. Right, exactly. So yeah, so there was this huge ideological reform campaign and the interesting thing to me about ideological reform campaigns in China is that they work like do you not find that really weird
1: (laughs) yeah but I mean if there are proper incentives provided say if you are going to have material incentives like if you're going to have a job if you are going to be fed if you conform to a certain ideology you know then maybe not that weird
0: yeah I guess it just it's it's interesting that there wasn't so much pushback. I guess okay. I guess the CCP had an army, so in that case, yeah. I suppose at this
1: point the party has penetrated to into so many different levels of society that it would be hard if you're just academics on one level of society, like because you don't have that same reach, right?
0: Yeah. And actually, now that I think about it, a lot of them were Marxist sympathizers.
1: Man, if you look at even intellectuals today, the only Marxists, true Marxists, left in the U.S. are in academia. So Mm. that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, academia in general, especially nowadays, is very left leaning, especially in Western countries. So I guess, and at this point as well, you're coming off the back of the May Fourth Movement and the Republican era, and then KMT suppression. So I guess academics were looking for a bit more, you know, a chance to kind of embrace this kind of liberalizing. Uh, rhetoric, right? And I mean, the CCP
1: is pretty convincing. I I, I would assume would be pretty convincing to many people in um, in their rhetoric about a, being kind of the inheritors, the true inheritors of the May Fourth legacy, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it worked because. So one of the things that I have to, or one of the things that's in my thesis and is a major theme is how in art colleges in China in the early 1950s everybody had to learn uh, something called socialist realism which Mm. is this imported form of um art from russian sort of it's kind of like a russian classical form of art like an oil painting but very realist style of oil painting it's very heavy very dark tone very kind of somber and everybody had to replace their kind of traditional chinese ink paintings or their Western sort of cubism or whatever cool style of painting that you've learned from the West with this very uh serious stoic form of art in order to represent the revolution. And it worked, basically, like a lot of other art forms were basically erased, and that became the socialist realism became the official form of art for the PRC. So This transformation happened in a really, really short period of time, actually, which I that goes to that speaks to the CCP's uh, sort of organizational skills.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's another legacy of the May 4th movement, too. There was this debate, art for art's sake versus art for life's sake and art for life's sake clearly won
0: out. Exactly. Um, Whereas the CCP, they were not here for art for art's sake at all. No No way. (laughs) So we've kind of already talked about this, about how the urban-rural divide ended up being actually emphasised under the CCP because of things like the hukou. Another way that it was sort of emphasised was with this education stuff as well. Because the CCP basically promised peasants by feudal standards the lowest tier of people, you know, you will be educated, you will have equal rights, your children will go go on to be uh, masters of the state, basically. And so the C- they did try. I mean, they with the education movement, they opened up all of these new schools in rural areas and they had all these short courses so that you could get extra skills and all these like, um, they're called like yei in Chinese, but I never know how to say that. It's kind of like after work hours sort of things, like extracurricular, basically, courses, almost like production goals. You know how in the CCP they're always like, production targets. So they had like literacy targets that were like learn one thousand characters in twelve days sort of thing, which obviously was not going to work. I couldn't learn a thousand characters in like a year and a half. So twelve days was <laughs> Yeah, it was really pushing it. Very quickly the CCP were like, oh no, we need to shut all of this down. And the reason that they had to do it, because they were like, oh now we've got like a quantity over quality problem, right? So you've got all these the children of these peasants going to school, going to secondary school, going to university, but actually they're not the quality of people that we want running the country. The quality of people that we want are the bourgeoisie. So they kind of had to pull back on promoting education for the peasants in favour of basically perpetuating the system whereby middle class and upper middle class and upper class people ended up being the ones to go to university and obviously people were upset about it and there was some sort of backlash from the peasants although not that much because again other stuff was going on like land reform and things like that and the peasants didn't necessarily think that having an education was super duper important because they were like it doesn't help us in our everyday work right but for those people who did want social mobility that would have been a huge disappointment to have all of these new schools introduced and then within three years they were all closed down because the party was like, actually, we need you guys to work on the land. Could you please not move to the cities? And there was there was no social mobility. Yeah, I guess we should talk about the modern day effects of these laws. Because I guess I mean, is there social mobility in China? It kind of seems like if you're you have you're born lucky, basically. You're either born to a middle class urban family in which case, you know, you have you still have to struggle. You still have to take that gal cow and get into a good university. And even then, you might not get a job. You might not get the job that you want without the right connections. Or you're born into like a rural peasant family with no money, and you either have to stay in your village for the rest of your life, or you end up as a migrant worker.
1: Right, and I mean, even after Deng Xiaoping's reforms, uh, the gap between the haves and have-nots has only grown wider over time. So there's not more equality now. There's less equality and less opportunities for advancement in some ways. And in terms of the contours of the divide, and I mean, you can't deny that a lot of people have been raised out of poverty at this point in time. But what co- I, I also feel like what constitutes poverty and what constitutes being a have versus a have-not has changed in a way. So, like, you know, people in poor rural areas are probably better off today than they were 50 years ago, but there's still this yawning gap between what they have access to and what their counterparts in, say, Shanghai or Beijing have access to, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, Yeah. Absolutely. Shanghai is not China. I keep telling people that. People go to Shanghai and they're like, oh, China's amazing. And I'm like, Shanghai isn't China. You've never been to China. Like, unless you've been to, I mean, I worked in a school in like a, I guess it was a township level. It wasn't quite village level. It was like between, somewhere between like a small town and a big town, basically. Um, Those children weren't going anywhere. (laughs) They, you know, these are people who are in classes of like 60 to 70 in one classroom and we were teaching with chalk and blackboards you know some of the classes had um you know the electronic equipment and you could use it to an extent on a projector but like you know the, this is all stuff that's like you know 15 years old maybe even 20 years old in western countries it's just that the practical elements of raising the educational equality of your peoples just still have not been put in place. And they weren't going to be put in place in the 1950s, <laughs> that's for sure. Like, yeah. if China hasn't done it today in 2020, in 1950, it would have been impossible. And you had all of these other problems to deal with as well. You know, famines... The last famine in China before, like, 1949 was, like, 1942 or something like that. So... Um, You had like way more fundamental, systemic issues to deal with. And at the same time, you're trying to carry out things like a war on Korea. Um, And you're also trying to institute land reform. And you're also trying to combat class enemies. There's a lot going on, basically. Which is also why the marriage law doesn't work out exactly how it's supposed to work out in the early 1950s although women do still continue to divorce their husbands throughout this period but you were saying that actually changes made to the law way after like 30 years 50 years later actually show how the law didn't work as intended at the time
1: right there need to be addendums
0: yeah so i'm i guess i guess that's it really for this episode that kind of ended on a negative note that's not where i wanted to end it i wanted to end by saying positive things <laughs> <laughs> about, about the marriage law what can we say positively about the marriage law
1: I mean it was very progressive and revolutionary for the time in terms of advocating for women's rights that's for sure
0: yeah definitely and I think I mean we'll see it later when we talk about the cultural revolution but the idea of um you know that famous phrase women hold up half the sky a lot of progress was made for women's rights in China during this period you can't knock that women in China face a lot of problems today there's still a lot of discrimination um like you said the uh in the 2001 law they had to what did they have to ban was it wife beating uh yeah domestic violence had to be banned too obviously changes are still being made and improvements are still to be had and you've got things nowadays like the um leftover woman phenomena as
1: well Although the leftover women are fighting back too. For those of you who don't know what that is, uh, shengnyu, literally leftover woman, is a pejorative term used for a woman over 30 who is not married. Um, And this is ironic because there are more women than men in Chinese universities today. Um, So women are on average better educated than men, um, you know, moving up into higher positions in society. And so a lot of, you have a lot of these very successful, very educated women who choose conscientiously not to get married until later. Um, And that there's a really interesting book that I'm reading right now, um, It's called Leftover in China, the uh, women shaping the world's next superpower, all about these influential leftover women. So it's an ironic pejorative term in that the men who don't want to marry these women usually don't want to marry them because they are jealous or have an inferiority complex in a way. But, yeah, there's definitely that stigma, unfortunately.
0: So I guess... It's good in terms of the fact that a lot of the physical barriers for women have been removed. So women can be very highly educated. Because in most, I think most major countries, the majority of people at university are women. I think it's a a statistic as well. Like in countries where women have equal rights with men, they are better off economically, basically. So the most economically successful, economically stable countries in the world all have equality between men and women so that's something to think about as well so that's something that the CCP did get right at least yeah that's
1: a better note to end on
0: yeah we're going to leave that one there (laughs) because otherwise we're going to fall into more uh, negative things but yes women in China have come a long way there are still ways to go but you know at least nominally they have equality and it's basically due to this law that was introduced in the 1950s which was very progressive for its time yes so thank you very much Emily for coming on and helping out with this episode thanks for having me and thanks everyone for listening to this episode and I hope you tune in to the next one and the next episode is going to be about mass campaigns in China and how the CCP uh, sort of carries out mass campaigns how they're organised what they're for and whether or not they work so tune in next time thanks so much for listening goodbye